Hello, I'm author Laurel McCarg, host of the Alligator Preserves podcast, and today I am delighted to reintroduce you to award-winning author Kathleen Casca, author of the Sherlock Holmes quiz book and so many other books. Welcome to Alligator Preserves a weekly podcast about revealing yourself through storytelling, story reading, and story writing, but probably not story arithmetic, because that's not a thing. You just might surprise yourself with the secrets you'll uncover. Kathleen, welcome back. Thanks for having me. It's a joy to be here. Oh, you're welcome. You know what's funny? I interviewed you two years ago in February... Right. It was, it was a cold. I remember we started the interview talking about how cold it was. I was living in Leadville at the time and now I'm living in Salida. So, and it's still cold. <laughs> well, it's cold here too. In fact, we just, we still have some snow on the ground. We had, uh, we had an unbelievable snow the last few days. And right now you're talking to us from? Anacortes, Washington. We're about two hours north of Seattle, kind of between Seattle and Vancouver, BC. Okay. And you're getting snow. I think it was unusual weather conditions the last time we talked too. This has been a crazy uh, couple of years. And it's it's hard to believe it's been two years, but let's just pretend that last year didn't happen. Okay. Okay. That That sounds good. That that gives us more to talk about. Yes. So two years ago, I interviewed you about your book, A Two Horse Town. Yes. Which I absolutely loved. And we talked about that. We're not going to repeat that. But at the time, you mentioned that you also had these other books out and you call them triviographies. Yes. Explain to our audience what a triviography is. It's a book that contains, first of all, it's a new word that my editor came up with when he put during the second book. So it is a combination of trivia facts and biography. So I, for instance, in the, in the Sherlock Holmes book, I talk about each of the stories that each of Conan Doyle's short stories and novels. And I start off with background information where he got his ideas, give you a little background, what inspired him. And then there are trivia questions on each one. So this is a very different book from your other books. And so that that makes you a multi-genre author. And I'm wondering if you've had any any backlash for being a multi-genre author or how how has it been being a multi-genre author? Is it difficult? No, not at not at all. It I've always written both fiction and nonfiction. In fact, my trivia series was the very first series I published. And I started off with Agatha Christie trivia, and then I went to Alfred Hitchcock trivia, and then the Sherlock Holmes trivia. The first one came out in 1996 when publishing was completely different than it is now. And then I published the other ones. And about in 2012, the the books had gone out of print. In 2012, another publisher contacted me and picked up all three of them. So they were reissued with new covers. And then two years ago, my agent called me and 
said that another publisher wanted to pick up Sherlock Holmes. So I got my rights back for that book and they wanted it updated. So what the new Sherlock Holmes, and it doesn't have the trivia title to it anymore. It's the Sherlock Holmes quiz book. And it includes everything that is Sherlock since 2012. So in other words, there's a section in here on the uh, BBC Sherlock series with Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh, There's a section in here on the CBS's series Elementary and then the uh, Robert Downey Jr. movies. And there is a section on a brand new Holmes series from Japan called Miss Sherlock in which both Holmes and Watson are young females. Oh, that was a fun series to watch. So when I updated the book, I got to watch, rewatch all these shows, all these episodes. It took several months because there were a lot of them, but it was so much fun. Do you know how many episodes were in elementary? No. 154. Is that one of the questions in your book? Uh, no, but I mentioned that. <laughs> There were a hundred, but that is a question that will help you answer another question. That's a fact that will help you answer another question. Oh my goodness. All right. So I've got, I have so many questions for you about this. Well, first of all, why these three, why Hitchcock, why Alfred Hitchcock, Agatha Christie and Sherlock Holmes? Why these three for trivia books? I, I love them all. Agatha Christie has always been an inspiration to me. I had all her books on, I still have all her books on my shelf. And so when I, wanted to break into writing, I knew that it was easier to break in with nonfiction. And at the time, trivia books were popular. There was a Stephen King trivia book and a Clint Eastwood trivia book. And I thought, okay, I can, I can do this because I had all of Agatha Christie's books. So I started with that and I, I didn't know anything. I mean, I was so naive. I sent my proposal I started off with a proposal, which is what you're supposed to do when you write nonfiction. And I sent it off to several publishers. I got some good feedback, but I didn't get a contract. I got several rejections, but a couple of them said, why didn't you get see about getting an agent? So I said, okay. So I queried an agent and he called me and he said, he wanted to talk to me about my proposal. I said, good. So we talked a while. And then afterwards, I, before I hung up, I said, well, so do you think you can sell it? <laughs> and he started laughing. He goes, listen, I wouldn't have called you if I didn't think I could sell it. I went, oh, okay, excuse me. <laughs> so he sold that one. And then I started writing the Holmes trivia book after that. But I realized that the following year, the world was going to celebrate Alfred Hitchcock's 100th birthday. Mm -hmm. So I called my agent and I said, I want to do this one now. He goes, yeah, go ahead. So that summer, I watched all of Hitchcock's movies, all 56 of them in chronological order. Oh, talk about an education. Favorite? Favorite movie? Oh gosh, I have several. I love I love Vertigo and uh The Man Who Knew Too Much and his romantic comedy It Takes a Thief with okay. Cary Grant and Grace Kelly. That's a delightful one. So a lot of people don't realize he did romantic comedies, 
but he did. And, and that was one of them. So you said you were naive, naive in the fact that you thought you could just call up a publisher and have a publisher do it or naive in that you didn't know what didn't needed know to go that, into the book? Well, I didn't know. Had, had you sat, set me down and say, listen, you're going to have a hard time getting an agent because it's just as hard as getting a publisher. And of course I didn't know that. So I, you know, I, I found in writer's market, I found an agent and I thought, Oh, that one looks good. And, and so I just sent off my proposal and expecting to get a call. And I did. And then later on, I found out how unusual that was <laughs> and how lucky I was. Yes. Well, maybe not so much luck as you did something right and you had the right stuff. So in this book, I noticed you have a tremendous amount of research. I mean, you must have researched tremendously. You have, what, 36 different references. Tell me about your research process for this, because this, I mean, this is packed, packed full of stuff. Well, I have a collection of Sherlock Holmes books, uh, not not just the ones that Conan Doyle wrote, but what other people wrote about Holmes. I have a whole collection of them, encyclopedias, Conan Doyle bi uh, biographies, just, you know, I just have a collection. So I used that. I used my collection. I bought some more books. I watched the movies, as many of the movies I could watch. A lot of, a lot of them were turned into movies. And I reread the books, reread the stories. I took notes while I was writing. So... I just pulled it all together from all the references I had. What was your biggest challenge of putting, I guess, each of these, because I'm assuming that they're similar in format. What, what was, what was the biggest challenge? Because again, you know, you've got, uh, you've got pictures, you've got fill in the blanks, you have crossword puzzles. I mean, you, you've got a lot of stuff in here. What was your biggest challenge? Believe it or not. The biggest challenge was after I finished writing <laughs> was to go in here and make sure I spelled all the names correctly. Because, I mean, you know, there are hundreds of names I list, actors and actresses all, and people who starred in some of the movies and were mentioned. I had to just get all, you know, all those names spelled right so. That was the biggest challenge. And then, the, you know, the names of the characters. And yeah, that, that took a while. Did you have an editor for this? And it must have been a, di a difficult well, I challenge did have finding an editor. an editor. Yeah. Well, the editor with the publishing company edited it. But I still felt that it was my responsibility to get everything to the editor as neatly as I could. You know, because there's a lot of information in the books. So, you know, I wouldn't expect an editor to just fact check everything, you know, and, I, and they, they did do an excellent job and called me on a couple of things. But, yeah, I had to I felt it was my responsibility to give them the best manuscript I could. Do you, do you remember the first story that you read or the, the most memorable one maybe from your youth? From Sherlock oh, yeah. Holmes? It, it has to be Hound of the Baskervilles. Okay. I mean, what what a story. The setting is like a character in itself. The Moors in England is dark and spooky. Uh, the setting is just wonderful. And it starts off just, you know, 
really, it just draws you right in. And I read it when I was a teenager and it was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so that, that is my favorite. So then I went on to read the others. And uh, before I even wrote the book, I was a member of the Austin, Texas Sherlock Holmes Society. So I would go to their meetings and we would discuss homes. And then I started writing and and now I um, have a home society here in uh, Anacortes, and we've been around for 10 years. Did you start it? Yeah, I started it. I started it. And we have about 25 members. We meet once a month, and we, we're kind of like a book club. We pick a story or anything homes. It could be a pastiche. It could be a movie. And then we watch it or read it and discuss it at our next meeting. So that's been going on for this is this will be our tenth year. We're called the we're called the Dogs in the Nighttime, and we are an official Baker Street Irregular Scion. The Baker Street Irregulars was the very first Homes Society ever formed in New York in 1938, I believe. Even before the London Society was formed, the first one was formed here in the United States. So we are an official society, and we we took our name, the Dogs in the Nighttime, from a reference in the short story Silver Blaze, where they're talking about the dogs in the nighttime, and Watson said, but Holmes, there were no dogs in the nighttime, referring to barking. He goes, that's my point. (laughs) Ah, nice. I I love it when you can come up with titles from from little snippets from things that you read Uh, for some reason the adventures of the speckled band just stuck in my head from this and i probably read it before i was a teenager and it scared the heck out of me oh i know that the snake coming down the rope and into the room and oh yeah so so creepy oh my (laughs) gosh i have to read more of that stuff do you think you could answer all of the questions in this quiz book right now. I mean, you have, so you have the crossword puzzles, you have uh, identify the tale by the first words, you have identify the character by their description. How many of these do you think you could have answered before you started writing the book? Very few. How many can I answer now? Very few. No, I I have to have the book with me. I have to have the book with me because, I mean, there's so much that, you know, I don't have the kind of mind (laughs) that I could just pull these trivia facts out of. So, you know, looking at the book, every time I look at it, it's kind of new to me. It's like, oh, I didn't know that. (laughs) (laughs) Even though you've written it. I know that's that's kind of funny. And rest in peace, uh, Alex Trebek. But I bet I bet you people would use this book for prepping for Jeopardy. Or all of it, your uh, absolutely, yeah. In fact, I I'm sure there was probably a Holmes category on Jeopardy once or twice. There had to have been, had to have been. Um, and for those of you just joining us now, we're talking with award-winning author Kathleen Casca, both with a K, author of the Sherlock Holmes quiz book, fun facts, puzzles, trivia, and more. And so, again, thank you for coming back here. Um, what do you think makes Sherlock Holmes, the character Sherlock Holmes, so real 
And, and the reason I'm asking this question is because there's actually a Google search of people looking up if Sherlock Holmes is a real person. What makes him so real? That question and why is he still so popular today are two questions that are always asked. He's so real because he, because of his deductive reasoning, he's a very serious guy, but he's very entertaining in his deductive reasoning. Somebody walks in, he looks at him and he tells him the whole life story, you know, just, just by clues. And then you think, Oh, how could he possibly know that? And then he explains it. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, I get it. So I think that's what it is. It's it's that remarkable ability to deduce things just by seeing something for a couple of minutes. And Conan Doyle based Sherlock Holmes on a real person who had the ability to do that. I think I read something about that either in your book or or somewhere else talking about the idea of logic versus emotion yes. and the idea that maybe the Sherlock Holmes character could have been somewhere on the autism scale, perhaps having Asperger's or something. Is, is that something yeah. that you researched? Well, that's something that's talked about often. And in the adaptations, that's obvious when you, when you see Benedict Cumberbatch on Sherlock and even more so with Johnny Leap Miller playing Sherlock in elementary, both characters have a difficult time socializing and being involved in meaningful relationships because they just can't be bothered with it. You know, they're interested in the facts they are interested in their work. They get depressed. They get down when, when there is no work. So yeah, autism, is is there's definitely on that scale. Do you think Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was on that scale? Or do you know if he had any personal? I don't think he was. He was a very gregarious man. Yeah, he he was he loved people. He loved getting out. He loved he loved, you know, just being out there. He wasn't at all the Sherlock Holmes type. So why did he create Sherlock Holmes? That's a you know, that's a mm. question. That's a good question. <laughs> what yeah, what did it he is. Well, he cre- he uh, was influenced by when he was in medical school. Uh, Doctor Joseph Bell had this ability to diagnose his patients just by looking at them, using the same method that you know Holmes does. You know, he'll look at them and say, "Well, you did this, and you were here, and this is what your background is, and your mother had this." And you know, he would just look at them and diagnose their situation. So that's where the idea came from when. Conan Doyle was in medical school. He was uh, a student of Dr. Bell's. All right. Well, that makes sense. Who's your favorite Hollywood Holmes? Oh. You watched all the uh, movies, you watched all the shows. Who do you think did him best? Well, let's see. Mm-hmm. I really like, of course, I really like Robert Downey Jr. in the Guy Ritchie films. But you have to look at that those movies in a different way because those are action films. So they're very different. And so you're looking at homes in a different way, but I thought Robert Downey Jr. pulled it off really well, even though he's not very tall, you know, Holmes is really tall and slender. So, so uh, Robert Downey Jr. looks, you know, not looks very different, 
but I think he is my favorite. My favorite all-time actor to play Holmes would have to be Jeremy Brett from the Granada series in the 80s. He was the perfect Holmes. In fact, I mean, he you look at him and you just know he's Sherlock Holmes. He's got the look. He's got the mannerisms. Yeah, he, he is my favorite. Oh, I have such a crush on Benedict Cumberbatch. Who <laughs> <It> doesn't? <laughs> oh, my gosh. He has such a memorable face. He's Yeah, I, I loved watching him in that series. Trivia. The trivia in here is fascinating. And I love learning about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle in this. And the fact that he had seances in his he, home. He was, was a big believer of the afterlife. And I guess he was traumatized by the death of, of his son and really wanting to connect with him. Uh, so later on in life, he was really into spiritualism and held seances. He was uh, friends with Houdini and Houdini was with him during a lot of seances. Not that Houdini was a spiritualist like Doyle. In fact, he kind of tried to talk him out of his beliefs at times, but he was, he was convinced that uh, he could communicate with the other side. Hmm. And there's some other trivia things like Sherlock Holmes never actually said elementary, you know, my dear Watson and the idea of the hat and the pipe and all that. So how did all that come about? Do you think? As in adaptations along the way, uh, they were added. And when the movies came on, they would adapt uh, the deerstalker hat was something you didn't really see. And the calabash pipe was not the type Holmes smoked. He smoked the, the I forget what they're called, but the long stemmed, straight stemmed oh. pipe. It didn't have the calabash. So it just, you know, in the adaptations and in drawings, in, in magazines and on posters, whatever the artist decided to do. So, yeah, it was just, you know, as, as, as it grew in popularity, there's an evolution in Holmes' life and what he looked like and how, well, not so much how he acted. That was pretty, pretty standard. But, you know, different things were added. The cape? The cape, yeah. <laughs> oh, Holmes usually wore a black top hat. And that was really uh, shown in the Jeremy Brett series. It, well, in fact, the Jeremy Brett series pretty much focused on the black top hat. Uh, I was at a Sherlock Holmes convention a few years ago. And when you go to those conventions, people dress up like the Holmes characters. You know, they dress up like Holmes, Watson, Irene Adler. And there was one tall, beautiful, tall young woman dressed in a black suit and she had the top hat on and she walked by and I said, I just really love your costume. And she goes, okay, well, who am I? <laughs> I said, you're Jeremy Brett. She goes, thank you. <laughs> she, her purpose was to dress up like Jeremy Brett's homes. Right. And most people would say, oh, great homes, great homes outfit. It's like, no, I'm Jeremy Brett as homes. <laughs> 
Nice. So you have something in common with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. You're both bird lovers. Yes. Yes. So one of the pieces of trivia I read was that he, in 1913, I think he tried to ban using bird feathers as decorative embellishments on women's apparel. Right. So tell me, tell me about you and birds and your animal rights activism, because that's something, obviously, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was interested in that. You're interested in that, and that uh, has to do with some of your, some of your other books as well. That's true. I am a birder. I've been a birder for several years. I am being a birder led to a nonfiction book, The Man Who Saved the Whipping Crane. This was published in 2012. This is a labor of love for me. It's a story. It's a the true story about the ornithologist, Audubon Society ornithologist, Robert Porter Allen, that brought the whooping cranes back from extinction in the 30s and 40s, when there were only 15 left in the wild. Wow. And he is a character that I like to compared to Indiana Jones. He's like the Indiana Jones of the birding world because what he had to go through to find this nesting site in Canada, which is the key to to saving the birds, was just like one death-defying adventure after another. Whooping cranes migrate to Texas in the wintertime. And at the time I was living in Texas, I was teaching science. And I went to a science conference and went to a field trip in which we went out to the refuge to see the whipping cranes. First time I saw them, I just fell in love. I mean, these birds, when they're adults, they stand five feet tall. They have a seven-foot wingspan. They're just absolutely beautiful. Were they being hunted? They were hunted, but mainly habitat loss. As agriculture moved across the country, a lot of their stop-offs, places in the flyway zone were plowed over. So they lost a lot of their habitat. And then a lot, in fact, a lot of ornithologists in the 30s thought it was a waste of time to try and save them because there were only 15. They thought it would be impossible to bring them back from extinction. I found out about the whooping crane story and Robert Porter Allen's efforts on that field trip. And then I was also writing for Texas Highways Magazine at the time. So I wrote a couple of articles about Alan and the birds and the refuge. And the more I wrote, the more I realized that there's so much about this guy that he was so fascinating. And what surprised me is that his contribution to the birding world was so significant, but people were forgetting who he was. I called the refuge in Aust- in, uh, in Texas to find some information on him. And the biologist I talked to there had never heard of him. It's like, wait, he used to work there. <laughs> he, that, was, that was where he worked when he was researching the birds. So I thought, you know, I need to, I, I didn't want him to be forgotten. So I started doing some research and wrote a few more articles. And then I said, okay, I've got to turn this into a book. And my journey on writing this book was just almost as pleasurable as writing it. Robert Porter Allen died when I was 11 years old. 
So I thought, okay, I want to find, no wonder if there's someone still out there alive that knew him. So I called the Audubon Society in Florida, which is where he was housed. I called the office and the guy who answered, I said, I'm, you know, writing this book on Robert Porter Allen. Is there anybody, do you know of anybody who, who might still be alive who knows him? He goes, well, have you contacted his daughter? Oh. So I said, no. So I contacted her and she was a wealth of information. And since that time, this was in 2007, we've become very dear friends. I went over to see her a couple of times and, you know, I did my research there and we've just, we've really become friends. So this book means so much to me because I always wanted to make a contribution and a cause that I cared about. And so that's what this book is about. And all my royalties for this book go to the Whooping Crane Association. So I, I, that, that's my contribution to the birding world. Long story. No, no, that that's awesome. And again, I I will have I will have links to Kathleen Casca's website and her Amazon site, you know, on my website when we're done here. So so you can find all this. I mean, that that's fascinating. And what a life work. His daughter must be absolutely delighted. She was that you've kept his name alive. What do you know about what do you know about ducks? Well, there are a lot of different kinds. <laughs> what do you know what, about? What, what duck do you have in mind? What do you know about domestic khaki Campbell ducks? I don't know much about domestic ducks. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> because I am now a, a duck wrangler and I have five khaki Campbell ducks. And oh. they've been, I've raised them since they were just babies oh. and all five of them. And one of them is a jerk. So evidently the pecking order is a real thing. Oh, yeah. And they all have personalities. They all have personalities. Yeah, they do. Do you get eggs from them? We get eggs from them, which has been wonderful, except that we discovered my husband was allergic to them, which was kind of horrifying, but I love them. They're delicious. But yeah, no, just recently. And so they're eight months old now. And just recently, one of them started pecking on another one. And I don't like that, but I read about that. And oh. for those of you who have birds and ducks at home, supposedly you're not supposed to do anything about that because you don't put them in timeout. <laughs> yeah, you don't put them in timeout. You know, you just make sure that there's you know no blood. But uh, <laughs> because if you if you get rid of the pecker, then another one would step yeah, up to take yeah. it <laughs> yeah. to take its place. So yeah, birds. Yeah, they they're really fascinating. There's a the program that was in place for a long time called Operation Migration in which they would take the abandoned whooping crane eggs from the wild and raise them in captivity. And then they would raise them in captivity. When they were six weeks old, they would put them through flight training behind an ultralight aircraft for the purpose of teaching them how to migrate to Florida. Because whooping cranes, migration is a learned behavior. Okay. So this organization was teaching these little bitty cranes how to be cranes and how to migrate. And I followed their their development for 15 years, and it was like a soap opera. They all had different personalities, and they, oh, it was, they were so entertaining. So, is and, there, and I mentioned that in my book. Is there a movie based on that? That, yes. That movie, Fly Away Home. 
Yes. It was based on the original program to teach birds to migrate. Okay. So population migration came from that. The movie came from that program. But the program first began with uh, geese, Canada geese, and the and the researchers realized they could teach geese to migrate. So when it came time for this whooping crane program to consider doing that, they got in touch with these guys and said, you think you can teach whooping cranes? So then they went on to teach whooping cranes how to migrate. Humans teaching birds. And the humans that that were in contact with the whooping cranes had to dress up as whooping cranes so they wouldn't imprint on people. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. My ducks follow me. Yeah, they do. (laughs) (laughs) You're their mama. I'm their mama, for better or worse. Um, A couple of years ago, we were talking about, you know, being multi-genre authors and all the different titles that we had. And you talked about having many, many book starts. And one of your ideas was a hard-boiled detective story. Have you done anything with that in the past two years? It's finished and I'm shopping it around right now. Yeah. So that's done. Do you have a title or no? Yes. It's called Death Without Dignity. Death Death Without Dignity. It takes place in 1945 in Manhattan. My protagonist is a down and out detective. He has shell shock from World War II and he's trying to get his life together. And I wanted to invent a character that when you first meet him, you just are disgusted. You know, you just like, oh, who is this guy? But then as the book progresses, you fall in love with him. Oh. So that was my, that's how I developed Ted Kendrick, my character. And by the end of the book, the people who have read, it's not, it's not published yet, but the people who've read the manuscript said, I just love this guy. You see his development and his salvation toward the end of the mystery. Well, I know you can write well, and I know you can tell a story and keep pages turning. So, you know, I hope you're listening out there, agents. This is going to be a good one. I'm looking forward to reading that. You also talked about having a West comma series, perhaps. Yeah, I'm from West comma Texas, which is a little town in central Texas. If you know Waco from the TV show, Fixer Upper. Uh, West is just a few miles away from that. And I, I did start two mysteries. I still have them. I have my, not my notebooks. I'm still working on them. But then I got sidetracked. And I'm right now working on a quirky British detective mystery set on the Cornish coast. I, because of COVID, I am. I was at home a lot, so I decided, okay, I'm going to start finishing some of these. So I, I'd start. I got this one out. It's called the Inspector Wiggy series, and I started writing it after taking notes and putting them aside. I started writing it on January the 19th, less than a month away, and I'm already 160 pages into it. Whoa! I know it's amazing what you can do when you're not distracted, <laughs> right? Do you work on more than one manuscript at a time? Yeah, I do. And the reason is because if I if I start writing at nine o'clock in the it's nine o'clock in the morning and I've hit the wall, I don't want to call it quits for the day. So I just work on something else. 
So I've always done that. I've always worked on several at one time. Several at one time. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to try that. I'm going to try that pretty soon. So I remember that when I lived in Leadville a couple of years ago, we talked about, you know, you, this, this series, right? Yes. Murder at the Arlington and you based it on different hotels. And I invited you to go to the, um, the Delaware hotel in Leadville. And yeah, that's still there and still, you know, has ghosts. And now there's the Salida Palace Hotel. So, you know, once COVID is over and you're looking for more places to write murder mysteries at, you know, we've yeah, got the places any, here. Anybody has a suggestion of a, a, a historic hotel, that's where they're all set. They're all set in historic hotels that are still open today. That's important because I want to go there and stay there. <laughs> all right. So I just named two and um, I could visit you in both those places. Yeah. Oh, that would be great. <laughs> you could show me around. <laughs> yes. And so when I ask what's next, you've you've already just talked about what, three different books you're working on? Yeah. Which one do you think yeah. will come out first? Well, Eagle Crossing, the third in the Kate Carraway series is, I'm hoping it'll be out soon because of COVID things have slowed down. So there's a backlog with that publisher, but I'm hoping it'll come out maybe this summer. There are two Sydney Lockhart, the hotel mystery series that I have finished, and they're they're in queue. There's a murder at the Minger, which it takes place at the Minger Hotel across from the Alamo in San Antonio. And the one I just finished is murder at the Pontchartrain, which takes place at the Pontchartrain Hotel in New Orleans. Okay. Do you have any shout outs for people? Well, let's see. I would like to... Shout out to my Sherlock Holmes family here in Anacortes. They're always very supportive. Yeah, they're always very supportive. I dedicated my book to them. And uh, I would like to shout out to all the dogs in the nighttime. Nice. And where can people buy your books? Bookstores. If they're not in the bookstore, they can order They can order the books. I always like to tell people to go to their independent bookstore first. They're available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Uh, You can get them directly from me if you want a signed copy on my website. Let me know and I can send you a copy. Is there anything else you want to tell our listeners about either your quiz series books or any of your other books? If you have ideas for hotels, send them to me. If you have uh, my ideas for my Animal Ride series, Kate Caraway series, mm-hmm. each book features an animal rights issue. This is this one features Mustangs in uh, Montana. So love that it, book. Love it. Loved Ida. And your suspense. Uh, oh, your suspenseful scene of that windy road. Oh, your your chase scene had me on the edge. It was fabulous. Thank you. Well, Thank you. Kathleen, this was delightful. I will have show notes with links and photos on my website at Leadville Laurel. I still go by Leadville Laurel, even though I'm living in Salida because I just had to keep it there. And wow, uh, keep writing, keep publishing. These are fabulous. Thank you for visiting. I hope you'll visit again, maybe in less than two years when you have, I don't know, 18 more books out to share. <laughs> Well, I enjoy talking to you. I enjoy being on your show. So thanks for having me. And thank you, Kathleen. And you stay warm. All right. Yes. You too. We'll see you again soon.
Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Alligator Preserves is hosted and produced by Laurel McCard with technical support provided by her husband, Mike McCard. Follow her on her website at leadvillelaurel.com where she writes about life, real, and imagined. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy her books. Find her work at amazon.com.